Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Our guest today is Bob Murphy, who is the chief economist for the Institute for Energy Research. Uh, he's also the host of two podcasts, Contra Krugman, uh, which is a Paul Krugman fan podcast that you host with uh, Tom Woods. And then you're also the host of the Bob Murphy show, uh, which I imagine, you know, how you got the the hosting duties there is, uh, is pretty interesting. But in any event, welcome to the program, Bob. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, yes, it's, it's also a, a pro Bob Murphy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it would be it would be weird if you were hosting the Contra Murphy podcast. Yes. That would, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, for listeners of our show, they may recall a while back we did an episode uh, on the carbon tax, which I am in favor of, at least in certain circumstances. Uh, however, I was not always in favor of a carbon tax, and uh, when I was opposed, uh, Bob. Murphy, his arguments uh, were the ones that I found most compelling. So we wanted to have you come on the show, Bob, and maybe try and talk some sense into me uh, on this subject and, and you know talk about these issues. So thank you for joining us uh, today. It's I, glad to be here, and I, I'm glad. I was worried you were going to say you used to be for it, and then you read my case for against the carbon tax <laughs> and realized you had been mistaken. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I figure uh, – one place to start is the Nobel Committee, or not quite the Nobel Committee, but the Nobel Prize for Economics was recently awarded to William Nordhaus, who is famous for his work on carbon taxes and climate policy. And you've written a number of stuff about Nordhaus's models and his case for carbon tax and why you don't think that quite works out. So if you could, maybe just really quickly explain what his argument for the carbon tax is, and then we can talk about why you think that doesn't work. So I, I would say, I would point your listeners, if they want to see a, a quick version of this in print, uh, I have a recent Econ Lib article for November called William Nordhaus versus the United Nations on Climate Change Economics. And so that'll have links to a lot of the stuff I'm talking about here. So yeah, Nordhaus, uh, as you say, he recently won the Nobel Memorial Prize uh, for his work on climate change economics, he developed what's called the DICE model. And it's a computer model that takes some of the, you know, obviously it can't be as sophisticated as the full-blown climate models because this has other things going on in it, but he tries to keep it updated with the latest findings um, in the pure climate science literature. And he just simulates the global economy and and, uh, climate over long stretches, like let's say 300 years. And the way he he models it as um, as if there's like a capital stock. So just like if you had in a neoclassical economics model that if you had like every period, there's savings and consumption decisions based on, you know, how much how is output going to be allocated? And if you save and invest some of it, then the capital stock next period is bigger. And that means even with the same amount of labor and other resource inputs, you get more total output. Nordhaus uses that basic framework, but he just has like the state of the of the climate being one of those uh, state variables. And so depending on how much greenhouse gas emissions there are, that can sort of reduce the, the, the climate stock, if you will. 
And so that's the way sort of mathematically he models it. And so there it's just like you're um, investing in the, the climate's ability to cooperate with the other factors of production in order to produce output. So that's like economically and mathematically how he does it. And so it's just a, it's a trade off. And, and that's why I liked Nordhaus's approach, because he was coming to, to this as an economist. It's just, you know, he he had a, a bigger role for government than, you know, I think a, a lot of more free market oriented economists would have. And what I have been stressing since he won the Nobel Prize is that no, even though Nordhaus is for a carbon tax, he's a, he's much more modest about it. So in the latest, so in the 2016 version of his model, Nordhaus thought that the optimal carbon tax would still lead to about 3.5 degrees Celsius of warming, which of course is you know way the heck bigger than the the, the 2C ceiling, let alone the 1.5 one that's more recently been uh, championed by the you know UN's IPCC. Right, and let me just add for our listeners, uh, you know we're we're talking you know we're talking about. 3.5, 1.5 C degrees. We are using the Celsius terminology. It's not because we're un-American or something. I, I wish that they would do Fahrenheit for these numbers, but the globalists at the IPCC and the UN, they all do everything in Celsius. So that's why we got to gotta do these uh, degrees the way they are. So it's basically, it's, not, it's a little bit more than half one degree Celsius is like 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. So just for your mental recalibration. All right, go, go ahead, Bob. The, the media announcements of these things were literally the same day that, that the, you know, the UN special report on various options for limited. And, and when they say living warming here, they're talking about baseline to the pre-industrial times. So there already has been like one degree Celsius of warming. And so the UN's special report that just came out a few weeks ago was saying, here's the the options available to policymakers if they want to try to still contain cumulative warming to 1.5 C and everybody's admitting we're kind of running out of time. Like, you know, this is getting to be vanishingly um, uh, possible even technically negative at, you know, to make the models work. Right. And, And so it was the same day that the, this year's Nobel laureates were announced. And so Nordhaus shared it with uh Romer, but the, the, my point is that, like the New York Times article that announced the or, or summarized the award to the, for the Nobel laureates, was saying, you know, Nordhaus, whose work has been cited by the IPCC, which recently, you know, which just you know concurrently released this report, so you, the average person would walk away thinking that, oh, surely the guy who just won the Nobel Prize for his pioneering work on climate change is largely in sync with the UN's latest report, which is telling governments around the world, here's the steps if you still want to try to hit this 1.5 C target. And just to, so your listeners understand where I'm coming from, in Nordhaus's uh, 2007 calibration, and the reason I'm going back that far is because that was the one that I studied more in depth in where he had some of these results. I don't know if he's actually published these results in later editions, but as of his 2007 model runs, he actually did consider the the policy option of limiting total warming to 1.5 C. And he found that that would make humanity something like $14 trillion poorer than if governments did nothing about climate change. Okay. So again, this isn't like a little quibble about, Oh, Nordhaus is a little less aggressive. It's saying like what the UN's latest thing was Nordhaus, at least as of 2007, his model said 
wow, that would be a lot worse than doing nothing at all. Like that's how bad and misguided that particular proposal is. Yet now it's you know being trumpeted as you know Nordhaus is against climate change, the UN's against climate change. We're on the same team against these crazy deniers. Yeah. So there's a couple of interesting things that might be worth exploring about that. One, it, you know, it is the case that like the 1.5 or two degrees or whatever, like these targets are. I won't say that they're arbitrary exactly, but, you know, they're not. The IPCC 1.5, they were told to do pathways for 1.5 degrees. So it's not like they, I don't think they ever say in there necessarily that they've done a cost-benefit analysis and this is the optimal degree of warming, right? They just, you know, this is how you would how you would do it. Maybe Maybe more warming than that would be, you know, like the cost of getting to 1.5 at this point, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be worth it. I, I don't know. Uh, the, the question that I, I do have, though, is, you know, this, this argument for Nordhaus, it kind of assumes, I guess, that the models are giving us uh, a really accurate and certain prediction of what the damages from climate change are going to be. And when I, when I read, I went back and read Nordhaus's book, The Question of Balance, where he lays out this model, uh, he doesn't exactly say that his values are like minimum values, but he does admit that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that he just doesn't include in the model, like catastrophic outcomes, or it's hard to, there's like non-economic, ecological type damages that aren't included in there, right? The, the fact that his model says, well, the optimal warming is, you know, would be three and a half degrees or whatever. I, I, as I read it, he like, that's kind of like a minimum that he's saying, not necessarily that that's what it is in terms of all the damage. I don't know. Maybe you have a different perspective on that. Okay, sure. So yeah, let me just respond to a few things you said. So you're right that strictly speaking, the UN's recently released document about, this isn't the exact type, but some like special report pathways to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, something like that. It's it's actually, the title is like 80 words long. It's ridiculous, but. Oh, really? Okay. Well then, yeah, (laughs) I guess I was giving like the the main part and not the subtitle. You're you're right. Strictly speaking, that is not that there. The UN is not saying in that document that oh, we weighed the costs and benefits, and the optimal solution is such and such. And you know, if if we allowed one point C degrees of warming, then you know that that would be uh, too too much, and one point four degrees would be too little. You're right. They didn't say that. What they do is they explain how they could sort of back out and say what would be the implied uh, social cost of carbon given how much emissions reductions would be necessary to hit these targets or or this target, I should say. So in other words, and, and they come out with estimates saying that the social cost of carbon in the year 2030 would range anywhere from $135 a ton up to $5,500 per ton. Right. And, and the, the social cost of carbon is like what the Nordhaus – his model spits out a number, which is basically every ton of carbon dioxide that you're putting out on average or, or whatever is going to be expected to do this much damage uh, over the long term and present dollars. Is that basically it? Right. In terms of like the negative externality. Right. Yeah. The people aren't taking into account that you know, you, you're buying you're buying gasoline and you're driving your car. And then there's these emissions of greenhouse gases that are foisting harms on everybody else over time and that, yeah, you're not fully taking into account. So they're quantifying what's that social cost of those net harms that are being inflicted on other people, perhaps decades down the road. And so it's the present discounted value of that flow of harms 
from one additional ton emitted in some particular year. So you're so yeah, the way Nordhaus's model works, and again, he his book that you were referring to, Josiah, the uh, question of balance. I think it was two thousand eight. What he meant was, you know, we we have to be good economists about this. Is there's trade offs always, and so let's yes, there's a negative externality from carbon dioxide emissions, but also there's there's um, there's costs in terms of mitigation policies, abatement costs. And so if you, for example, if you tax carbon, that's going to reduce conventional GDP growth, right? That there's a reason we use gasoline powered vehicles and coal fired power plants. You know, historically those things were cheaper, more reliable and so forth. And so if governments impose policies that make people move away from those techniques, that has a cost. Right. And, and so that's what Nordhaus was trying to balance. Whereas you're right, this UN report, it's not saying all things considered, we think this is the optimal thing. They're just saying, well, we were sort of told, let's limit it to 1.5 C. And you're right, that was somewhat arbitrary where like people from the physical sciences were kind of listing all these various potential tipping points. And, you know, at, for, at one point it was they were saying like, OK, yeah, let's limit it to 2 C. And then they were saying, you know what? Why, it'd be better. It'd be even safer to 1.5 C, and that was more of just like a sort of somewhat arbitrary constraint. I guess my point on that is, and then I'll turn to your thing about Nordhaus's damage estimates. Is the Obama administration came up with this this whole working group on the social cost of carbon that you know interagency working group, lots of different agencies involved. They had three computer models. They went through and all this stuff, all this published literature, all these IAMs. Nordhaus wins the Nobel Prize. We go through all this stuff. And they're coming up with estimates of what the social cost of carbon is and are wagging their fingers at the deniers who are ignoring it. And the Trump administration is being excoriated because its EPA was trying to downplay those numbers. And the numbers they were getting, you know, were like 30, 40, 50 dollars a ton, something like that for the years we're talking about. And yet the U.N.'s latest report would imply a social cost of carbon that was anywhere from three to whatever, 50 times higher. Okay, or actually, I'm looking here more like a hundred times higher, depending on you know the high range of that. So, it just I think the person you know the average member of the public might be somewhat surprised to hear that, right? That there's this huge disconnect between these things, and it's sort of like what what's the point of, of going through all that exercise if the policies you're going to enact like aren't even in the same zip code as this alleged estimate? Um, as far as you, you know, how does Nordhaus generate those numbers? So I, I would say yes and no. So it, yes, he does. He doesn't explicitly model a lot of the things that people who are alarmed about tipping points include. But he did have a sort of a catch-all, um, and I, I the links for people who want to see. You can see the the article I just mentioned here. There's a link to my earlier journal article in the Independent Review on this. But he does have a like a list of sectoral damages. Nordhaus back in his 2007 the iteration of his model and something that was a huge component of the total damages was just catastrophic impacts. So he didn't go through and, and precisely model each thing, but he did just say he had like a catch all for that. And he came up with a way. And, and actually, as I point out there, he exaggerated it. In other words, he went and surveyed just various experts in the field and said, what is your, what's your probability subjectively if we had such and such a warming that global GDP would get hit by, I think it was 20%. And they gave him some estimates. And then later, as the literature got more pessimistic, Nordhaus just doubled all those estimates. Right. So he didn't even go resurvey the experts. He just said, well, it's worse than it was when I asked him before. So I would say, if anything, he was bumping up what the estimates at the time were 
in, in terms of the the estimates of the of damage. So so yes, with all this stuff, I mean, you can't have everything in the model, but again, it's it's sort of ironic to me that people who are against aggressive measures are always having, you know, getting denounced for denying the science and hey, this is this is consensus. Look at the peer-reviewed literature. And so in this context, I'm pointing to the peer-reviewed literature. The guy just won the Nobel Prize. And everyone's telling me, oh, yeah, well, those models aren't really accurate. They leave out so much stuff. And yeah, well, Okay, but it's just kind of a weird thing where what, why are we going through all these modeling exercises if we're not even going to pay attention to them? Well, that's – yeah, so that, that is a good question. Well, I'll do one more question about the mo- models uh, and then you know maybe we'll move on because I, I know it's not – I find it riveting. Maybe not everybody sees it that way. I don't know. But is it M- MIT economist Robert – I think it's – is it Pendike or Pendick? I think it's Pindike. Pindike, yeah. Okay, well, we'll go with that. So, you know, he's been pretty critical of these models' ability to accurately forecast climate damages, although he's also for a carbon tax. But one of, one of the points that he raised is that the models as- assume that whatever damage is going to come from climate change uh, would only affect the GDP levels, right? So it would be like a, a one-time hit to the economy, as opposed to uh, affecting growth rates somehow, because you've got to redirect resources to, you know, building seawalls, or you know, there's some evidence about like when it gets really hot, you know, productivity in certain sectors like construction goes down or whatever. Uh, some of that is speculative, um, but it is the case, I think, that if you were to say that you know global warming was going to have even a small effect on growth rates, that could vastly expand the overall damages that we're talking about over the long term, because uh, as economists will tell you, you know, the miracle of compound interest, small changes in the rates really add up, right? Yeah. So as far as Pendike, and, and again, I hope we're pronouncing his name right. For sure. Yeah. He's, he's, he starts out his, his scathing article saying how, of, of how much value are these, he calls them IAMs, integrated assessment models. So Nordhaus's model is one of those. And it was those three types of those models in that genre that the Obama administration used to estimate the social cost of carbon. And, and Pindike said that they're close to useless, these types of models. And his big point was they give um, a false sense of precision to the policymaker. Like, oh, wow, in the model, the social cost of carbon in the year 2030 is $48 per ton. And that's interesting. You know, and that's he's saying that that's very speculative. And he also just went through and showed how crude the damage functions were in a lot of these leading models right that it was it was a pretty simple measure like just oh as a you know as the as the temperature goes up maybe you take the square root of it and do this and that in in terms of the hit to gdp it it wasn't a really full-blown simulation he was pointing out um in terms of oh and there's this different you know agricultural sector in bangladesh gets hit by this and that that, no it it was fairly crude so i on that score just to so your listeners understand Especially, I've, I've looked more into uh, Richard Toll's fund model, and he really is keeping track of all the literature on the impacts, and he tried to um, include a lot of that stuff. But I think what Pindike's point was that it's more like, you know, these guys are familiar with the overall literature, and then when they want to come up with a quick summary of how do I translate different levels of warming into impacts on GDP, that that mechanism is fairly crude. It's And I have no problem with that. And as you say, this isn't an ideological thing that I, you know, I'm coming at it from the anti-carbon tax perspective and I'm pointing out that these models are pretty crude 
and then you know Pindike's coming at it from his angle and saying the same thing. So I'm I'm largely fine with it. As far as your other point about are these models systematically underestimated because they're not looking at growth rates? I don't re- I don't think remember having Red Pindike make that argument, so I can't independently say whether that's valid or not. I my understanding of how they work, I don't think that would be right. In other words, if the if the model, like if Nordhaus's model were accurately understanding the impact on the level of GDP in the year 2050, well, then it would also be accurately understanding the impact in the year 2055 on the level. It, you know what I'm saying? So I, I don't I don't think it's making you that. I mean, you could quibble and say that its understanding of impacts, period, is off, but I don't think it's it would be missing something just based on the level versus rates of growth thing because if you're accurately measuring the level each period then that's that's good enough in other words you're, you would already have been taking into account the the climate change damage and how that's affecting the evolution of gdp over time we just had the uh, the recent midterms from what i can tell all the uh, propositions on uh, legalizing marijuana were very successful but the ones on carbon tax uh, went up in smoke so to speak so uh, are, are carbon tax proponents high? <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I mean, the, the Washington State one, I guess, is probably the ones that we're all familiar with. And it is interesting. I, I saw some reaction of people saying, well, gee, the problem was it was a net tax increase and they should have made it revenue neutral. And then people were pointing, well, that's what they had last time and it didn't work either. And, and maybe the, the particular opposition shifted between the two different uh periods um yeah i i think it's undeniable like what fans and opponents of carbon taxes agree that particularly the american electorate is very skeptical of, of, of carbon taxes and so from my perspective i would say rightly so and i realize other people you know are kind of scratching their heads and saying what what you know whence this irrational fear of a carbon tax well it is a tax right it has tax in the name so that's probably the worst thing about it from my perspective Right, and that's why you do see some marketing efforts to label it like fee and dividend, and yeah. you know. So I, I think that's um, somewhat duplicitous, and I, I, that's so. I guess what I would say is that's what I do appreciate about people who are at least being transparent. That, like that was my concern with cap and trade. That I was hmm. thinking some people might not fully understand exactly what that was. Where at least a carbon tax, everyone's admitting what it is, and you know I'm, I can at least appreciate people who just come forward and say, yeah, this this is a tax. You got to tax something, and there you go, and we can debate from there. For myself, I don't whether you call it a tax or fee, it, you know, is kind of not a big thing. I I have had people kind of beg me to say, you know, like I I find these arguments compelling, but just don't call it a tax. So I don't know, <laughs> but you know, uh, whether you call it a, a tax, a fee, or a banana, I think the effects of it are the same. So the, the I, I understand like the the, the rationale is like, oh we're going to call it a fee because you know it's a it's a charge for using something and you know it's not it's not like we're just taxing something just for pure revenue purposes and th- that analogy I think is is somewhat weak because for example like the the original tragedy of the commons you know the pe- ranchers are grazing their cattle on an area and you know the open pasture land I mean the solution to that was not to implement a grazing tax or a grazing fee from the government or to issue a number of permits that, the, you know, that the parliament issued and then the, the ranchers could trade those. Permit. I mean, it was just to have private property rights. So even in some of these ostensibly paradigmatic cases of where there was weak or ill-defined property rights and then they fixed it and people are saying, so therefore nowadays we need a carbon fee. I'm just, 
I'm pointing out that, well, no, that analogy, that doesn't actually follow. That That's not what the historical solution was to these common uh, overgrazing uh, concerns. There's a, uh, a recent article by uh, Matt Welch um, of Reason Magazine, and it's a it's sort of a, a look back at the 50 years of Reason and the founder of Reason, who apparently had a, a, a quote that uh, we, we typically hear the quote, taxation is theft. Uh, but apparently he had a line, uh, pollution is theft. What, what do you think about the idea that a carbon tax is just sort of is remedying that theft, if you will? It's a way to, to price the pollution and reallocate it to uh, reallocate that cost back to the polluters. In terms of the, the physical reality of it, I am very leery of labeling the release of carbon dioxide as pollution. That I, I think that that's largely a rhetorical move to make people feel like it's the same thing as somebody you know dumping gunk into the river. And I I think that just biologically and chemically that that's you know that that's not th- those are very different things. So that's so that's one aspect of it. Um, why I really d- don't like that that terminology. Um, as far as, you know, well, is it a negative externality? You know, there we can, we can get into it. And I don't think it's as crystal clear and slam dunk a case as, as some people believe it, it's, it's more difficult to, to make that case Cause there's a lot of offsetting pluses and minuses, you know, fewer elderly people die in the winter, that sort of thing. And then also to the issue of to really get it to be something that's going to be a serious issue it's not enough just to, to do the direct chemistry of, you know, what's the what's the extra retention of heat, you know, in terms of this, the direct greenhouse gas effect or greenhouse effect, I should say, but that there's, you know, positive feedbacks. So I'm, I'm just saying it's it's a lot more complex a case to be made than simply, hey, I live downstream from some factory and they're, you know, they're dumping chemicals in there that's making my kids sick, that it's uh, a lot more complex than that. But even if you wanted to stipulate all that for the sake of argument, no, I, I don't think that it, it follows from that. that oh, so therefore the, the proper remedy is to trust political officials to go ahead and levy a tax on that activity and that you know they're going to get it right and that they're going to use the revenues in the proper manner. I Just like there's all sorts of things that are bad about the world and I typically don't trust government officials – to be the ones to solve those problems that they often are causing them or exacerbating them through other channels and that they're going to use that as an excuse to get more money and power. And so that, you know, my, that my cynicism on those other areas also comes through on this one that even if you did. So I, it's true. I don't think that human caused climate change is, is a catastrophic thing the way a lot of other people do. So that, that is true. I'll admit that. But even if it were, I why would I you know just like terrorism is a real thing, but I distrusted the Bush administration's Patriot Act and other measures. Uh, that doesn't mean you know that I was a terrorism denier. It just meant a lot of times political officials will use some threat in order to enhance their own power or budgets. I follow a lot of uh, Canadian press, and they're they're talking about the uh, their carbon pricing. First off, do you have any uh, any comments on on what they're trying to propose in Canada? My only general remarks on Canada are the the ones I've studied in more detail was the was the British Columbia experience, and so for a while that was the poster child of the pro carbon tax camp. 
because you know that that was revenue neutral and it in the beginning it looked like it really was and then there was a lot of um statistics that people showed that seemed to show that oh bc british columbia was doing just as well economically as the rest of canada so there you go you know it didn't hurt their economy and it's revenue neutral take that you know you paranoid right wingers but the, i think it's pretty much admitted now that they were playing games with the, with their budget figures such that they were counting things that you know tax cuts that would have happened anywhere other things getting refunded to, to their citizens and saying oh that's from the carbon tax revenue so it's see it's revenue neutral when that stuff already would have happened so i i think on net most people agree that it's no longer revenue neutral and i think that was like the one example of, of that happening so and the other thing too is i show this in the in my cato paper on the case against the u.s carbon tax we just went through the it's like the the British Columbia had a, a lower unemployment rate than the rest of Canada before the carbon tax, the provincial one, and then once they implemented that, the gap shrank. So um, I think you can you can show that no, it actually did stifle conventional uh, provincial growth, and again that they eventually did not uh, heed the the revenue neutrality pr- pledge. Well, uh, and not to get too uh, wonky, but isn't it the case that if I mean you mentioned in a footnote that. That's really dependent on what time period you look at, right? Like you, you looked at five years or something, and if you look at seven, it disappears. Are we t- talking about the, the economic performance? Correct, yeah. If, if you're quoting my footnote, then I'm not saying you're wrong. <laughs> like the, like the, the Bob Murphy who wrote that footnote was more in command of the facts than I am right now. We'll go with that, Bob Murphy. Yeah. But you, so hey, we'll trust that you're not misquoting mis, uh, me. You were, you, were, uh, you were correct when you said that you had a pro-Bob Murphy per, pu- podcast. You're not going to throw yourself yes, under the bus. Right, right. That's good. I want to follow up on the, the pollutionist theft point because I don't want to get into a semantic argument about whether something's pollution or not. But just, you know, if we're talking about if we're taking a strong property rights perspective, then even if it's the case that carbon dioxide emissions and cause climate change uh, is not going to have a catastrophic effect and maybe Italy, you know, it's going to benefit some people, harm some people. Uh, we don't typically say that it's okay to violate someone's property rights just because it's going to help someone else more. Right. Like, so, you know, if the government says, well, we're going to, we're going to seize your, your house, right? Uh, so we can give the land to a developer, so they can make a shopping mall, and you know, uh, we've decided that you know uh, the benefits of that are going to outweigh you know the, the harm to you. You know, we'd say, well, that you know that doesn't matter, right? The fact that you are damaging people's property—that's it, right? So why wouldn't something similar be true for greenhouse gas emissions, regardless of whether you want to call that a pollutant or not? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think. Because I could come up with other types of examples. So, so you're right that clearly somebody every morning comes out and, and dumps garbage onto my front lawn that, you know, he's violating my property rights and I should be able to force him to stop doing that under, you know, standard legal theory, what have you. And he wouldn't be able just to go and, and say, well, no, but actually there's a lot of uh, – biodegradable stuff in my in my garbage and that's actually helping that guy's garden so really you know i should be able to do that i'm doing him a favor he should be paying me to dump stuff you know you i get get where you're coming from uh i think though the the problem is okay if you push that to its logical limit then i mean couldn't couldn't you argue then that no one that you have to get permission from every other human being on earth before you can exhale 
and I, right. you know, and I, th- I think we would kind of recoil from that and say, no, that can't be right either. And now you might say, see, so I'm just showing you the, the absurdity of your property rights approach and let's just have a carbon tax and, and move on with our lives. So I get that. But I'm, I, I'm saying that the, the property rights solution, I don't, I don't think we're just going to throw out the idea of property rights in courts and, and legal boundaries. I think we admit that no, in most areas of human interaction, those are important guiding principles and you really don't want like in the U.S. context, a group of politicians in D.C. sort of regulating all those those interactions. You want to have a system of property law. So I'm I'm just pointing out that yeah, this is a, a messy issue, and it's it's you know it's it's not. I don't think it's analogous to someone dumping trash onto your lawn. I think it's much more amorphous than that. But on the other hand, I can see how it's conceivable technologically or I don't know physically chemically that it's more serious than just, you know, geez, someone exhaling. I mean, because also, too, I mean, to, to, to get away from the greenhouse gas, but just in principle, it's possible that a, a band holding a concert in China somehow does vibrations or whatever that bothers me on the other side of the world. And yet I think, you know, in most cases we would say that doesn't mean I can get an injunction against them, that, you know, whatever that, that link is is so weak. And that we're just realizing if you're going to allow that to go through, that nobody can do anything unless they get explicit permission from everyone on Earth. Right. That you know that that kind of thing is tricky. Or can a, can a plane fly over a bunch of houses? Or you know, if you own a house, does that mean you own the unimpeded column of you know of air up through what the the top of the atmosphere? You know, as far as the solar system go. You know, so it's a lot of these things that just you can't from an armchair perspective think it all through. But I think that the basic principles are still there and that's the kind of stuff that in my view in a more uh libertarian world would get fleshed out in the courts yeah i so i do agree i i don't want to abandon property rights altogether even though there are these kind of limit cases where the standard thing that we would say which is well let's just rely on property rights in courts to work it out i don't think that that works and it, it is the case I, I i agree with you you know when you talk about not wanting to trust the politicians that that does really resonate with me but it seems to me that that's kind of like a an unrealistic choice in that, you know, we already have an EPA, right? There's already government bureaucrats doing a lot of this stuff. There's already a lot of policies in place, uh, many of which are are less of, of more costly for the emissions that we're we are reducing than something like a carbon tax would be. And you know, m- maybe the uh, response would be, well, we should just get rid of all that stuff. But that's not very politically realistic either. It seems to me, so likely anyway. Yeah, right. I think it's odd in this. So I, I believe me, I get where you're coming from, but I think it's an odd thing where if we're arguing on the merits of the carbon tax per se, and we're, you know, we're coming down with pros and cons. And then if you bring up the fact that, hey, look at already this group of people, this institution, namely the U.S. federal government that I want to give the power to have a new carbon tax to look at all the palpably absurd regulations in the name of fighting climate change. They already have in place that are ludicrously more expensive than they're possibly worth under any metric and that that's supposed to be a feather in your cap. Like to me, <laughs> that seems to bolster my case. Like you can't trust this institution with this new power. Look at what they've already done. And so I, I get how you're saying, no, no, no but we're going to we're going to make them really hold up their hand and promise that they're going to roll back these things and never bring them back. And, you know, and we're going to really make them, you know, do scouts honor. I to me that's 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 they're very naive. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, the fact that they have these economy standards which do barely anything as far as global warming, but they do cause a lot of extra passenger deaths statistically. 
to me, that just is further evidence that this really isn't going to be about scientifically and rationally addressing climate change. If we give them this new tax, it's going to be about raising revenue and spending money on, quote, green projects in order to cater to particular interest groups. And that, you know, what's my evidence for that? I was like, look at all the other stuff they've done so far that you agree is crazy and is completely irrational in terms of fighting climate change. Well, yeah, but I mean, if you if you take away the authority of EPA to regulate greenhouse gases, then, you know, they, they can't do it, right? If, if that doesn't work, then I don't actually know what the point of arguing about any of this stuff is, right? Because it doesn't really matter. Like, they just, they have this power, power they're never going to give it up, so, you know, Maybe we should focus on something else <laughs> with our lives. Well, sure, yeah. I, so I get what you're saying. If, if I take what you're, you're saying, look at, yeah, maybe they'll never give up that stuff. But then, you know, what, what, why are you? And so, what I would say is, yeah, I'm enunciating what I think good policies would be. You know, or I can at least rank them in terms of outcome. And it sounds to me like you're saying, you know, Murphy, why don't you agree to a carbon tax, even though we understand why you don't like it and you, and you think on net it's a bad idea, but as part of this grand bargain that simultaneously gets rid of, you know, the EPA's authority to regulate on emissions and we'll do it that way. And so I guess I'm saying, because, well, for one thing, I'm not a senator, right? In other words, like maybe if I were, you know, and, and you were coming to my office and making the case here, you know, maybe I'd listen to, but if you were the a point senator, I, you'd have a problem, I think. <laughs> I would, but but you you're right. <laughs> I couldn't cash my paycheck because yeah. taxation stuff. <laughs> but you, but I don't know if you, if I'm getting my point that well, I'm saying what my role is like. You know, as an economist, a, you know, I call it a public intellectual, what have you, writing things on this is that I don't think that that swap would be a good. You know, I can come up with things that I think would be better, and so I'm going to explain. Well, no, I think making such a swap really would be dangerous, and here's why. Look at the history of like the income tax. And how much the the rates were jacked up when they went into World War One, you know, I think that would happen with a carbon tax, and you know, that, and that sort of thing. Well, we just have to not get involved in a world war. That would also be helpful, probably. <laughs> right. Yes, I would not support a war against climate change, or yes, or a China. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's my point. Is just you know, you we are sort you know intellectuals who are trying to educate the public and and so forth and make these issues clear. And so I'm saying yes in that context. To me, it seems like the best thing I can do is to point out what the the best solutions would be, and you know, to talk about well, why, you know, why wouldn't I throw my weight behind some compromise that I actually think would blow up in everybody's face? I, I don't see why I would do that. So we've noticed that we've had a uh, a, a unusual number of Bengalis. Uh, on the on the program, I think we're up to about maybe uh, episode twenty at this point, and I think we've had at least three Bengalis as well as some other uh, South Asians. And, but you and I have just pointed out that actually Lubbock and West Texas have been pretty well represented. Uh, you're in Lubbock. We just had Kevin Williamson. We've had Vance Ginn, who has a degree from Texas Tech, as do I. Uh, so, uh, what is it about that about Lubbock that people are missing out on, and why? Did Amazon make a mistake of not moving its headquarters to Lubbock? <laughs> Something I didn't know. So I'm here at Texas Tech, the Free Market Institute. In case people aren't making that connection, um, I didn't realize this was the birth was the birthplace of, of Buddy Holly. I mean, yeah. they got the Buddy Holly mm-hmm. Museum here. So yeah, I don't know if he was born and raised, but yes, that, so that was a a pleasant uh, surprise for me. They got like his iconic glasses, you know, like blown up, of course, and outside the uh, the Buddy Holly Museum. It's pretty good. I, and I did. Uh, 
I did a song at the local karaoke bar, and I cleared it with the DJ first. I said, is this the kind of thing where if I do a Buddy Holly song, are they going to like it, or are they going to like you know rip me apart that you don't mess with Buddy? And he said, no, they'll like it. And they, <laughs> they, they did. So. Okay, so uh, as Doug was alluding to, I, I typically ask the guests, like, what's their favorite movie related to uh, you know whatever the policy area is that we're talking about? So I don't know if that would be like favorite economics movie uh or favorite climate movie carbon tax movie i'm not sure there's a lot of those uh favorite uh, movie about theft the, the what <laughs> so favorite movie about theft. favorite heist movie yeah yeah oceans oh you know oceans uh 1.5 right <laughs> be all about how you know reducing uh carbon emissions is actually just a uh, smoke screen so they can like rob a casino or something but uh, I, I, I know that you and I are both follow up the climate casino. The what? Didn't Nordhaus, didn't he have a follow up book? Yeah, the yeah. Casino? It was not. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it was very disappointing from that aspect. If you were looking for a heist thriller, the climate casino is perhaps not for you. I know you and I are both fans of the old TV show, TV show Seinfeld, and you do a, uh, a mean George Costanza impersonation. Do you have a favorite Seinfeld episode or fa- favorite economics lesson from Seinfeld? Huh. I don't think I have an economics. I think my favorite one was the one where Kramer's hitting the golf balls out and and they it goes into the whale. Mm-hmm. And then George is pretending to be a marine biologist. And then it comes back to haunt him because he's on the beach when there's a beached whale. And someone says, is there a marine biologist? <laughs> and he's later, he's like, the sea was angry that day, my friends. And <laughs> George is getting very angry. I did that once. Uh, there was a period where I was doing my Costanza, thinking that would be endearing to this to the younger generation. And one of us, I was up in, in front of a high school audience, and I did my George's getting very angry. And the dad brought up his daughter afterward. He's like, "Hey, Doctor Murphy, I love your talk." And I was telling Sarah here that there used to be this show Seinfeld, and you did a really good impression. And so that's when I had to stop. Stop. Yeah, <laughs> pop culture reference were no longer pop. They were just uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, So our guest today has been Bob Murphy. Bob, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys.